There was once a young man with vaulting ambition and a Christian faith. And he made a deal with his pastor that he would continue to tithe throughout his life, no matter how much money he made, and he would trust that God would help him in the process, but he would continue to tithe. He would continue to give 10%. He actually made a covenant about this. And so things begin. He's making thirty or $40,000 a year, and once a year, he chose to do it once a year, he would write the check. So he writes a check for $3,000. A couple of years pass, he's now making $100,000. And so once a year, he writes that check for $10,000. Several years pass, he's now making two hundred and fifty. So it's a pretty big check. It's almost pretty much a car, but he, he continues to do it. Years pass, a half million dollars. He's starting to sweat it a little bit, but he writes the check. He does it. Now, 10 years after that, he was making $1.2 million a year. So he goes to the pastor, and he's like, I can't even write this check. That's a $120,000 check. When I started, that was like enough to buy a house. Like, I, I, I don't know if I can do this. That's a lot of money. Can can you pray for me? Can you please pray and ask God if I can get out of this covenant? Because this is just, this is just too much money. The pastor looks at him, gives him a mischievous smile, and then starts praying. After a couple minutes, the guy's like, what what are you doing? What are you praying? What are you praying about? Are you praying that God will get me out of the covenant? The pastor looks up at the man and smiles, and he says, no, I'm praying that God will take you back to the beginning, back when you were giving with joy. And there are several things that we can see out of this. One of them is that he was receiving a blessing from the Lord the whole time. The other one that it's important to give with joy. But we're going to talk a lot about that blessing today, that there is a blessing that comes from sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord, that song we just sang says it so well. Lord, I need you. We need you, Lord. Thank you for the incredible ways that you provide for our bodies and our souls and our lives and our families. God, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus our righteousness. Jesus, as we enter into this time of teaching, God, would you open up our hearts to receive what you have for us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, official welcome to everyone. My name is Al Westerman. I'm the pastor here. And we are nearing the end We've been in a series called Misfits, Misfits of the Bible. We've been in it since September, and it's been a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. The, the big idea of all this is that God uses imperfect people, right? We've seen this in the story of Saul, Saul or Paul, and he had a past that was actually belligerently opposed 
Christianity. Now, when you think like that and when you act like that, you can think that that excludes you from service from God, that God wouldn't want to invite you in. But he does. We've looked at people like Matthew. And we have actually looked at Zacchaeus, rather, a different tax collector, who was despised by many of the people. He, was, he had a reputation of being a cheat. And again, you think someone with a reputation like that, what would Jesus want with them? Well, Jesus wanted him. He wanted to redeem him. We've also looked at people like Lazarus, who was dead. And it's just proof that God can use absolutely everyone. Now, last week and this week, we're talking about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is really neat because he's, he's very relatable. You may be wondering, what is Nehemiah doing in a series on misfits? Nehemiah's probably one of the most normal people in the Bible, and he probably is. But I think that's what makes him so relatable, and I also think that's what makes him seem like, what is he doing in the Bible? There, he, there's no record of him prophesying, doing miracles. There's no dramatic calling on his life. He's just an ordinary guy choosing to live in obedience to what God is calling him to do. He doesn't have a job in ministry. He's just doing what he believes God is calling him to do. And so we're going to pick up essentially where we left off last week. So if you have a pew Bible, it's around page 392. And for everyone else... It's in Nehemiah chapter 10. And we're going to be starting around verse 30. So a recap. This is at the very end of the Old Testament. Besides the book of Malachi, this is actually the last book of the Bible. This happens after the time of David and the kings. The Israelites sinned a lot and God said that if they continued along that way that he was going to exile them. He did. And they stayed in exile for 70 years. There were then reforms by Zerubbabel and Ezra. And last week we talked about Nehemiah and how God had stirred in his heart. And do you remember the first thing that Nehemiah did? Did he go to collect resources or troops or support? Or what, what did Nehemiah do? Was someone here? He prayed. Thank you. Nehemiah prayed. So why did he pray? He prayed because he believed that was the most powerful thing that he could do. He prayed because he believed that was the best return on investment. He prayed because that, he believed that that might give him opportunities that he wouldn't otherwise have. He prayed to sharpen his axe, so to speak. And Nehemiah was granted favor with the king in an absolutely extraordinary way. They go on and they build the wall. In Nehemiah 6, they celebrate the building of the wall. In Nehemiah 8, Ezra reads from the book of the law. And something really wonderful happens after the reading of all this law. You can see it in verse 17 is that they begin to celebrate. The whole company had returned from exile, 
built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. They celebrated it. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. And they celebrated the festival for seven days. They celebrated amazingly. They celebrated um, what God had been doing in their lives, but they also celebrated the law and how the Bible can come alive to people. So Nehemiah chapter 9 is an amazing prayer. I hope you have read that. If you haven't, there's still time. But amazing prayer in chapter 9. And then chapter 10 is where we're going to be picking up today. This is the agreement that the people come into. So you see at the last verse of chapter 9 there, it says, In view of all this, the prayer, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our, and our leaders, our Levites and priests, are affixing their seals to it. So then it says all the people that put it in writing and fix it with their seal. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of votes of yes. We agree with all this. Now, what is it that they're all agreeing on? Let's look in verse 30 of chapter 10. They agree on many things, but three of them that we'll talk about today. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume responsibility for carrying out the command to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. So the three things that they agreed on here, three of the things they agreed on here were not to intermarry. They were to obey the Sabbath and to tithe effectively. Now, some time passes, and when we flip to Nehemiah 13, we see that Nehemiah, after all of these reforms that he had done and such, that he had returned to the king. Verse 6, it says, But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king, and sometime later I had asked his permission and I had came back to Jerusalem. So 12 years, give or take, had taken place from then to where we are in our story here today. They had made those three covenants, and why don't we check in on the Israelites. Let's see where they're at these days, shall we? Let's see if we're going to be impressed. Uh, Verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. What this means is that they weren't being provided for properly, so that they needed to supplement their full-time ministry with work of their own. Uh, This is not just a problem back then. I know some people who are in full-time ministry and have to supplement that with side jobs. It's, it's, It's still a thing. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. 
all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shemaliah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storehouses, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant. I can read these on my own, but when you have to read it in front of a whole bunch of people, it just makes you nervous. Uh, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. So here we see that even after they had made this covenant, they had made this agreement that they were going to continually provide for God, for the Levites, they were going to bring the tithes into the storehouse, as we, to use the language from earlier, that they had stopped doing that. So now we want to go into the why of all this. Like where is, is this coming from? Well, tithing as a concept comes, it, it occurs several times, especially in the Old Testament. And what I think is remarkable about tithing is that God doesn't ask for our leftovers. He doesn't ask for the runt of the litter, so to speak. He asks for the best. He asks for the best of the produce. He asks for the best of the, the grains or the lamb, whatever it might be, he asks for the best. So why is this? Well, if you'll allow me, I'd like to phrase it this way. You get what you give. So if you can imagine two farmers choosing to tithe in different ways, one of them gives God the runt of the litter each time, and the other one gives God the best, the first tenth, so to speak. I believe that what would have happened is the person who got a runt, who, who gave the runt, next time around would have all runts, and the person who gave the best would have all best. I think that you, you get from God what you give to God, and if you give with a joyful heart, and if you give the best of what you have, you receive better in return. It's, it's a better return on investment. It's trusting that God can do more with your resources than you can do. And so it's giving the first tenth. Chantelle and I have decided years ago that regardless of whatever is happening in our life, we will make it our first tenth. The first tenth that goes out goes to the church. It's giving God your best. It's giving God your first. And another concept that comes with all this is, and, and I believe this with all of my heart, that we can do more with 90% of our money in God's blessing than we can with 100% of our money. I believe this. I, I read it in the scripture, and I've experienced it in my life over and over again that somehow 90% is more than 100%. So Nehemiah encountered that people were not tithing, that they were not giving to the house of the Lord as they had committed to. Was that the only offense? Let's look in verse 15. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. 
And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish of all kinds in all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you were doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us, on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. This is pretty interesting what he does about it. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened again until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night outside the wall? If you do this again, I'll arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Nehemiah is a savage. He sees God's law and he goes after it. There is a powerful lesson that we learn in the Bible about the Sabbath. The the Sabbath idea was initiated by, by God himself. He created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And from that time on, the Sabbath was revered. It didn't become an actual law until it got added to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. But before that, we learn... And very, a very touching, and I would hope transforming lesson about the Sabbath, and it's on the topic of manna. Now, when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, God gave them manna. It was on the ground. It looked like milk. It tastes like honey, but it was kind of more like bread, if that makes sense. And Every day they would have to collect it. And if they collected too much, it would spoil. The point of this is that we don't need to be greedy, but that we can actually trust God. That we can trust that God is going to provide for us day after day after day. So this stuff spoils very, very fast. Now, in Exodus, if for those of you who are taking notes, you don't have to turn there because I'm just going to paraphrase it, but in Exodus 16, 21 to 26, we see him talking about collecting manna for the Sabbath. You would collect enough before the Sabbath to last you all the Sabbath day. And the manna would last. How does that work? It's a miracle. Think about it. This concept. It's a miracle. God works a miracle in this. It it lasts way longer than it ordinarily would. That you can collect enough in six days to last you for seven. There are many local businesses, and there are several that are closed on Sundays. But I'll pick on one of them, and it's Kingdom Timbermart. Now, I understand the temptation Home Depot's open on Sunday. Rona, 
Home Hardware, they're all open on Sunday. So are they losing business by being closed on Sunday? Some people might think so. But the owners are believers, and they believe that what the Bible says is true. And maybe they also believe in this miraculous provision principle, that God thinks that if God says that you can collect enough in six days to last for seven, maybe they believe that, and maybe they receive blessing because of that. It's also a sign, eh? Taking off the Sabbath is a sign. It, we see that in Exodus 31:17, And if we go back to our example with Kingdon, it's a sign for them saying what they value. They value what the Bible says. They value rest. They value people. When we properly rest on the Sabbath... It shows what we value. It's also a sign to the world around us. So Nehemiah doing all of these things, did it, did it have an effect? Did it last? I think it did. When you read the New Testament, you see Jesus over and over and over and over butting heads with the religious leaders. And so many times, it's about the Sabbath. So after this point in time, there must have been very serious attention given to Sabbath adherence, which is a good thing. The downside of it is, is that they added to the Scripture. If we were to imagine the, the Scriptures itself as a series of gates in, in which we can live and enjoy and be protected from outside influence. If we were to imagine that, a, a fence, so to speak, then what the religious leaders did is they took those 613 laws and they built a fence around the fence and they added so that there were some 2,500 laws. Now that's a lot of laws. But they counted it as equal to God's law. Now, these are laws given by men, and this, these laws were the ones that Jesus butted heads with the religious leaders about. It wasn't the laws that God had given. Was actually, one of the reasons why he did that is because there was so much legalism around that. And they would ask him, why do you do what was unlawful on the Sabbath? They would ask that to Jesus, right? So the question is, was he doing what was unlawful by man's standards or by God's standards? And he was doing, it was simply the imposed laws of man. It wasn't against God's heart at all. Jesus actually clarifies this in Mark two twenty-seven, where he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So what is the Sabbath made for? It's made for us to rest. And it's probably important to mention that many of us view rest differently. Let's think about gardening. It's probably fun to think about gardening when everything's white outside anyway. But gardening is a, a really good example because if you're the kind of person who really enjoys gardening and you find it really restful 
and enjoyable. Then, yeah, do gardening on the Sabbath because it restores your soul. If you're the kind of person that hates pulling weeds and hates all that kind of stuff, it's probably not for you. So it's what brings rest to your soul. I like to dirt bike. That's about as far from rest as you could possibly get. It's noisy, it's energy, it's all of these things. But for me, it brings so much joy to my soul. So what is rest? God wants rest for your soul because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I don't know if you noticed this in the story, but Nehemiah actually hired people to work on the Sabbath to protect people from buying things on the Sabbath. That's duty though, isn't it? And myself and several other people have a duty to do on the Sabbath. Now, if you can get out of it, great, but some people can't. And especially frontline workers, PSWs, police officers, etc., there, there is a duty. And so there, there are exceptions. The point of all this, though, is not to fall into a legalistic view of it, but understanding that God has this Sabbath for us, for us. And receiving that. Now, if we thought Nehemiah was acting savagely in the last set of verses, it's nothing compared to what he's about to do. Verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. That is, <laughs> that is shocking actually. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Now, the, if we were to relate that to today, the, the, the sin in that is not marrying uh, someone of a different background or ethnicity than you. That's, that's not the point. The point is, of faith, your faith background, your belief in Jesus. This is actually something that I have uh, changed my tune on over the years. I used to say, I used to believe in what we'll call relational evangelism, meaning you get in a relationship with someone and hopefully as time goes, they become a Christian. Um, I, I have seen that work out 
a little bit, but I have seen it go backwards. I've seen it go bad more often than not. And the importance of the foundation on which you base your life, your marriage, your parenting, your finances, everything should be on the foundation of Christ. And if your foundation is different, if what you're building your life upon is different, it's a very difficult thing to reconcile. I understand in this room there may be someone or people that did not do things this way. And I like to take comfort in the fact that God knows our steps. He knows our past, and he knows our future, and that in God there is always still hope. I say this today to uh, encourage those who have children of faith and who have children to be very selective about who you choose to spend your entire life with and make sure you're building it upon the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the encouragement is given to not be unequally yoked. That's in 2 Corinthians 6.14. And this was something that was brought to me uh, especially by both my parents, but especially my mother from a very young age. My mom likes to tell the story of when I was three years old or so, I was at a playground. And I was chasing this girl around. I was chasing, just yelling at her, do you have Jesus in your heart? Do you have Jesus in your heart? I had to know. I had, if we were going to be married someday, we had to make sure we had the same foundation. My mom told this story at my wedding. And I think my mom took so much joy in that because uh, she saw in Chantel the things that she had instilled in me as a boy. And um, to this day, Chantel and I start our day with Jesus, and we have decided to build our life upon the foundation. And um, that is, uh, that's probably the greatest joy of my life. Um, it's, it's, it's very important. And um, yeah. You're laughing at me? <laughs> that's a daughter for you, isn't it? Uh, thanks, Ellie. That helps me get back in. Uh, so choosing who you marry is, is, is very important. And um, kids. All right. So w- what did we learn from all this? I think one of the underlying principles here is that God's ways are not easier. God doesn't call us to do the easy thing. He actually calls us into sacrifice. He calls us into the harder thing that is going to be better for us in the long run. We don't always have the whole picture, but God has the whole picture. He sees from beginning to end. And when we do things God's way, we never regret it. I don't know anyone who has done things God's way and later regretted it. 
Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. We can enter into his ways by doing what is right over what is easy. Another thing is that we need to be reminded. There was a 12-year gap there where they weren't being reminded of what they had actually agreed to. And we need to be reminded, don't we? We need to be reminded of what God's truth is and what God's ways are. We also learn that we can test him. Believe it or not, that we can actually test him. In Linda read it earlier, but I want to read it again. In Malachi 3 verse 10, God encourages us to test him. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see that I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields. These are supernatural provisions that God is giving us. The vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed. It will be a sign. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. And the last thing I want to say is that we should have a little bit of an advantage in trusting God. A lot. The source of all this is trusting in God. And for those of us who are in Christ, we've already done that with the most significant thing. We've done that with our lives. When we come to Jesus, it is saying, it's acknowledging that I can't save myself. It is trusting in his perfection. It is trusting in his sacrifice. And when we come to him, we receive his righteousness. We give him our weakness. And we receive his perfect strength. This is true for our salvation. It's true for our finances. It's true for our time management and our rest. It's true for our relationships and our marriages. When we give God what we have, we receive what he has. And so, Father God, we ask for courage. We ask for courage to do what is right over what is easy, over what seems good in our own eyes. Grant us courage and discernment, Lord. Amen.